Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. If you visit my office, either at home uh, or at the seminary, you will probably pick up the faint aroma of pipe tobacco. Now, don't be alarmed. I don't personally smoke a pipe anymore. Now, that's another story for another day. But my grandfather, Chester Denham, was an avid pipe smoker. And because how precious the times I spent with him are to me, to this very day, I love the aroma of pipe tobacco. I can get just one whiff of pipe tobacco, especially that mixture of cherry and tobacco. And think of all the times that I spent with my grandfather sitting out on his back porch and chatting about how things used to be. I think of all the times that my granddad taught me manly tasks like how to cast with a rod and reel, how to drive a nail, how to saw a board. I think of our projects like making a homemade toolbox and a rope ladder for the treehouse. And I can't help but think of the moment that he died. And as his possessions were distributed among various grandkids, one of the things that came to me was this little foul box of cassette tapes. And although it had never occurred to me to actually keep recordings of my sermons from my teenage years, my granddad had practically every single one. And he had taken the time to, with his old manual typewriter, type out the labels with my name and where I was pastor and the, the date and the sermon title. 
And one look at those cassette tapes made it clear that they were very well-worn. He had listened to them again and again. And so from time to time, I light a pipes-scented candle in my office at home or at the seminary, and I remember him. Well, that's a lot like the Lord's Supper. The echo of Christ's voice on that fateful night, the smell of the bread, the taste of the wine, stir vivid and powerful memories of Christ's sacrificial death and all that he accomplished for his followers. When our Lord Jesus ascended to the right hand of his Father, he wanted his followers to celebrate this supper in remembrance of him. He didn't want to be remembered by taking pilgrimages to the Holy Land and venerating a tomb that he only briefly borrowed. He didn't want to be remembered by laying flowers at a slab of stone. He wanted to be remembered by his disciples as they reenacted the last meal that he shared with the 12 and reflecting on the meaning and symbolism of the words of the supper. Normally we think of the Lord's Supper as a memorial of Christ's atoning death. And that much is certainly true, but it's far, far more than that. The symbolism of the supper is much richer than that. Well, this morning from the account of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Luke, I want us to re-examine the details of this holy memorial of our Savior, and then I want us to remember all that he has done for us. The first symbol, of course, of the supper is the bread. And the bread causes us to remember the forgiveness that Christ gave. As Christ distributed the bread to his disciples, he says, this is my body which is given for you. And the verb given there presents the death of the Lord Jesus as an act of sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that secures the forgiveness of sin. Christ's reference here has a very rich and powerful Old Testament background. And for the sake of time today, we can't fully explore that. I want us to just focus on the main Topic. The Lord's Supper portrays Jesus as the true Passover lamb. Don't forget that the Lord Jesus shared this supper with his disciples in the context of the Passover meal. And the ancient Israelites ate a piece of roasted lamb during the Passover meal to commemorate the original Passover lambs that had been sacrificed at the beginning of the Old Testament exodus. You will remember that 
Pharaoh's heart had been hardened, that he refused to let God's people go. And through a series of ten plagues, God moved the will of Pharaoh so that he would cooperate with the divine plan. The final climactic plague was the death of the firstborn. The destroyer would go throughout the land of Israel and strike down the firstborn offspring of every human household and even of the flocks and the herds. But God instructed the people of Israel to sacrifice a Passover lamb and to paint its blood on the frames of the doors to their homes so that when the destroyer passed through the land and came to that household, rather than unleashing his wrath against that family, he would pass over it and leave it unharmed. Passover commemorated, in other words, how God had mercifully spared his people from the wrath of the destroyer through the sacrifice of the lamb. And from the very beginning, Luke's gospel has reminded us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. It's no coincidence, for example, that in Luke chapter 2, the birth of the Lord Jesus is announced to the shepherds of Migdal Eder in Bethlehem. This not only fulfills Old Testament prophecy, it highlights something about the significance of the Lord Jesus and his coming. Because the Mishnah, in its Shekelim tractate, tells us that all of the flocks between the city of Jerusalem and Migdal Eder in the vicinity of Bethlehem were destined for one distinct purpose. Although sheep all over the rest of Israel were raised for their wool and for their mutton, the sheep between Jerusalem and Migdal Eder were destined exclusively for temple sacrifice and primarily the, the sacrifice of the Passover lambs during the Passover festival. And by announcing the coming of the Messiah to these shepherds of sacrifice, the shepherds of Migdal Eder, God is making it clear that Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb, the true Passover lamb, and by his sacrificial death, the wrath of God will pass over us and leave us unharmed. That same theme is repeated in Luke's account of Jesus' transfiguration, that great moment where Christ, with the inner circle of three disciples, climbs the mountain and the glory of his deity bursts the seams of his humanity and we see him in all of his divine glory. And Luke tells us that in that moment, Moses and Elijah appeared. And these two Old Testament prophets discussed with Jesus his departure, is the way our English Bibles translated it. The departure is a reference to Jesus' physical death, his sacrifice for our sin. But what's interesting is that the word in the original Greek translated departure is the Greek Hex Hadas. Sound familiar? It's Exodus. 
what Luke is telling us is that just as the death of the Old Testament Passover lamb was the prelude to the redemption and deliverance of God's people from their slavery in Egypt, so the Lord Jesus is a Passover lamb whose death will mark the beginning of a new exodus. An exodus in which we are delivered from our slavery to sin and to Satan, as we discussed just this last week. By uttering the words, this is my body which is given for you, the Lord Jesus is making it clear that he is the new, true Passover lamb whose sacrifice saves us from the wrath of God and begins our spiritual exodus that rescues us from our slavery to sin and to Satan. And we see the same rich symbolism of the Last Supper in the writings of the Apostle John, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle John in his gospel, for example, tells us that Jesus died at the very moment that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. That's no coincidence. And then John goes on to tell us that not a single one of his bones were broken. Ordinarily, when somebody suffered Roman crucifixion, one of the Roman soldiers would take a heavy mallet called the crucifragum and would smash their shin bones, breaking their legs in two so that they were no longer able to lift themselves up to inhale on the cross. Once their legs were shattered, a person quickly would die of suffocation. But when the Roman soldiers came to smash the shin bones of the Lord Jesus and the two condemned criminals beside him, they found that the Lord Jesus was already dead, and so the heavy mallet was never applied. And the Apostle John tells us that this fulfilled the scriptures which said, not one of his bones will be broken. John's words are a quotation of Exodus 12:46 and Numbers 9:2 which says of the Passover lamb it must be eaten inside one house take none of the meat outside the house and do not break any of its bones. The Apostle Paul clearly understood all of the significance of Jesus' death and his identity as the true Passover lamb. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we eat the bread, we are reflecting on Jesus' sacrificial death, and we are expressing our gratitude for the forgiveness of sin that he has provided, which has caused the wrath of the heavenly judge to pass over us so that we can escape it, so that we do not need to suffer it. Because we have confessed faith in the Lord Jesus as our God, our Savior, and our King, we no longer stand before him guilty and condemned. But he has separated our sin as far from us as the East is from the West. And as Ezekiel the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet says, he remembers our sin no more. We're fully forgiven. 
Every sin we have ever committed or ever will commit is erased from the divine record, and he counts us as innocent, as blameless, as righteous, and thus withholds his wrath from us. But in addition to the bread that causes us to remember the forgiveness that Christ provided, Christ also holds up the cup and urges us to remember the change that he has made. Now, normally, when we come to the cup of the supper, we associate it with Jesus' atoning sacrifice as if it had no more symbolism than the bread does. When in fact, the symbolism is related but distinct. The Lord Jesus says, as he holds up the cup, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And what he means by that is that his death is not only an atoning sacrifice, as the bread symbolizes, but his death is also a covenant enacting sacrifice, as the cup symbolizes. Now, what are covenants? Covenants were agreements that God made with his people in which he made certain promises that he would most certainly fulfill. And those promises provided the terms by which God relates to his people and his people relate to God. In Bible times, covenants were ordinarily enacted by the performance of a sacrifice. And we see that beginning back in the book of Genesis when God makes his covenant with Abraham. He says that he's going to give him a son, that he's gonna multiply his descendants, that his descendants will inherit the land of promise. And Abraham seeks assurances that those promises will be fulfilled. And so God instructs Abraham to slaughter three animals, a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and to divide their carcasses in two. And then God's presence passes between the divided carcasses in the form of a flaming fire pot. And by that action, God is swearing by his own existence to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, may I become like these slaughtered carcasses if I don't keep my promise to you. The sacrifice enacted God's covenant with Abraham. It sealed God's covenant with Abraham. We see the same thing in the giving of the Mosaic covenant. Next it is 24, when the law is given as a covenant between God and his people, Moses is instructed to slaughter a bullock as a fellowship offering, and then he takes half of the blood of the bullocks and sprinkles it at the base of the altar, and the other half is sprinkled over the people. And as Moses does this, he shouts, Behold the blood of the covenant. By the sacrifice, that covenant was enacted. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the phrase that we translate make 
a covenant or establish a covenant would literally be translated cut a covenant. Why? Because making a covenant involved the cutting, the slaughter of a sacrificial animal. And when the Lord Jesus holds up the cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, he's saying, my death on the cross is not only an atoning sacrifice that provides forgiveness for your sin, it's not just the sacrifice of a Passover lamb that initiates the new exodus. No, my sacrificial death is a covenant enacting sacrifice. It will enact the new covenant between God and his people. Now, what's this new covenant? This new covenant is the covenant that God promised repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets. In fact, even going all the way back to the time of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Two of the clearest descriptions of the new covenant are found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet says that God is going to make a new covenant with his people, and it's not going to be like the old covenant. He said, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. Why? Because they broke my covenant, even though I love them like a husband loves his wife. The problem with the Old Covenant, the 613 commandments of the Torah, was that they instructed God's people what they were to do, but did not effect any change in them so that they were empowered to obey. But the Scripture says that when the New Covenant is given, things will be different. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And the point is that in the new covenant, God's demands for his people will not merely be an external standard that we vainly strive to live up to. God's law will be an internal standard. He will transform us from the inside out so that it is our very nature to do what is holy and right and good. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 explains that God will fulfill this promise of writing his law on our hearts through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. As Ezekiel explains the new covenant, which he calls the covenant of peace, he says that God's going to give us a new heart. He's going to take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And then God says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you. That's a powerful word. Cause you to keep my commandments and fulfill my ordinances. The law is written on our hearts as the Holy Spirit indwells us, imparts to us his own holy character, and moves us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. The Apostle Paul explains this clearly in texts like Romans chapter 8, where he says, The law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the old covenant, which only exacerbated sin. The more it told us not to do something, the more we were determined in our rebellion to do it. 
and then resulted in death, the sentence for breaking God's law. But the law of the spirit of life that has set us free from the law of sin and death is the new covenant promise. The law of the spirit is the Holy Spirit indwelling us and acting as our law, giving us internal standards for our conduct and speech and imparting to us new eternal life as a result. That's why Paul continues by saying the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So when we drink of the cup, we're not just celebrating Jesus' atoning death that the bread symbolized. No, we're celebrating more. We are celebrating the new covenant that the Lord Jesus enacted and sealed by his sacrifice. That new covenant in which God writes his law on our heart, grants the spirit to us, and transforms us, our character, and our very spiritual nature. You might think, well, we're done. The bread, the cup, not so fast. Because in addition to what we might call the consumed cup, the, the cup that we actually drink from now in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, there is another cup that we might call the waiting cup. You'll notice in Luke's gospel that the original Lord's Supper involved not just one cup, but actually two. There's a cup at the beginning of the supper, and then there's a cup at the end of the supper. And when Christ holds up the cup at the beginning of the supper, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This cup that we don't drink now, that we will only drink from when the kingdom has fully arrived, signifies the glorious return of the Lord Jesus, the completion of all of his promises, the consummation of his kingdom. You see, first century people of God recognized that when the Messiah came in all of his glory. He was going to share with his followers what they called the great messianic feast. It's what the apostle John in the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the lamb. And Christ refers to this great feast only a few verses later here in this very chapter. He explains in verse 29, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. What Christ is saying is that when he returns again in glory, he is going to hold the great messianic feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, and his disciples will participate with him in that. So when Christ holds up that first cup and says, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until I share this cup with you in glory. 
is reminding us that the Lord's Supper is not only about looking to the past, but also anticipating the future. It's not just about looking back, it's about looking ahead. It's not just about commemorating Jesus' death as our Passover lamb that causes the wrath of the Father to pass over us, or even Jesus' death as the new covenant sacrifice through which the Holy Spirit is granted and our character is completely changed. The Lord's Supper is also an anticipation of that moment when Jesus will return in glory and he will set everything right. Only a few weeks ago, we studied this in Revelation 21. This is the day when the Father will declare, Behold, I make all things new. And he will wipe every tear from our eye, and there'll be no more grief or crying or pain or death because the former things are passed away. And this whole heaven and earth will be recreated and restored. Everything that sin has broken will be fixed. Everything that sin has corrupted will be purified. And we will live eternally in the paradise that God originally created before sin disrupted it. And of course, this moment of Jesus' glorious return is the moment when we will be finally and completely transformed. Although the Holy Spirit indwells us, the Spirit indwells Bodies that still suffer the corruption of the fall, that still wrestle with what the Apostle Paul calls the sinful flesh. And that battle rages on and on our entire physical lives. But when we are raised from the dead, we'll be raised in bodies that are incorruptible and no longer suffer the corruption of the fall. We'll be raised in bodies that Paul calls spiritual bodies that are perfectly adapted to the Holy Spirit's control. We will be glorified and transformed completely to fully exhibit the holy character of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, Now, we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made fully known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we celebrate the Lord's Supper in anticipation of that great day. Yes. We celebrate what Christ has already done for us. And what he has already done for us is glorious and it is grand. And yet there is a deeper longing for more in the heart of every redeemed sinner to be truly and fully all that God desires for us to be, to be holy as he is holy, the fundamental commandment of Scripture. That day is coming. And we anticipate that day when we celebrate the supper. 
The Apostle Paul said, For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes. The supper anticipates that moment when he comes. If we piece all of this together, what we discover is that the Lord's Supper symbolizes the full gamut of our salvation. The bread celebrates what we might call our justification, where we're declared righteous by the heavenly judge and no longer deserving of his wrath. The cup serves as a symbol of our regeneration and sanctification, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that gave us new birth initially at our conversion and continues to transform us day by day, even now. And the waiting cup reminds us of our future resurrection and glorification in which we will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and this broken world will be restored. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be a little bit puzzled that, that people would gather on the Lord's day and they would share that cup and share that bread like we did earlier and this worship time. We do that because we love to remember. We love to remember a Savior who loved us so much that he came into this world and lived the perfect life that we cannot live so that he could go to the cross and bear the punishment for our sins in our place so that we do not have to be punished. So that the judgment of God could pass over us rather than fall upon us. We celebrate the supper with joy because we believe that the same sacrifice that granted us forgiveness of sin initiated a covenant that has changed our lives dramatically and continues to change us even now. And we celebrate that supper because we are convinced that the Lord Jesus is coming again in glory. And although we have received so much for him, that singing thanks to him for all eternity could never be enough, the best is yet to come. We would love for you to share that gift with us. You can receive the forgiveness of your sin. You can escape the judgment of God that we all rightly deserve. You can have your life dramatically changed. And you can receive the promise of an eternity and glory with our God through faith in Jesus Christ today. Offer your life to him now. Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your judgment. But I believe you died on the cross for me. Please forgive me. Change me. 
He's never turned away anyone who made that plea. Trust Jesus as your God, your Savior, and your King today. And if that's your desire in just a moment when we sing together, I'm going to ask you to come forward and speak either to me or to one of our church leaders here at the front so that we can answer any questions you may have, talk to you about the next steps in your Christian life, and leave this place celebrating that the grace of Christ that saved us has saved yet another. Lord Jesus, we are grateful to remember who you are and what you have done. Our Passover that saves us from the wrath we deserve. Our covenant sacrifice that unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and transforms us from the inside out. And the promise of your glorious return and all the joys that we will know when we see you face to face and we are at last made holy. Father, help us to remember and celebrate and show gratitude for all that you have done, not just in the celebration of this supper, but from the moment we wake up until the moment we lay our heads on the pillow at night, day after day after day. Move us to live our very lives in gratitude for all you have done. Help us to always, always remember. In Jesus' name.